When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to talk about inductions. So when I thought about this podcast, in my brain, I organized it as the yes, no, and maybe to inductions. We talk about what are medically indicated reasons, what are not medically indicated reasons, and then what falls in that gray space, the maybe. So to have this conversation, I have Marley Hall. Now, those that are on social media know her as Midwife Marley. She is a midwife of 13 years. She's a registered midwife and mother of five from London, UK. And she's also the author of a new book, Midwife Marley's Guide for Everyone, Pregnancy, Birth, and the Fourth Trimester. And Marley is just truly lovely to speak with. I had such a fantastic conversation. She is thorough and depth and easy to listen to and easy to talk to. And we cover some wonderful information about induction as well as how to have a conversation with your care provider if you are talking about induction and really how to advocate for yourself. I think you're absolutely going to walk away from this conversation feeling empowered and feeling like you have some direction and voice in how your birth unfolds. So before we get to that conversation, I just want to remind everybody about a few things happening at the studio at Prenatal Yoga Center. So we've had students asking as the world has very much reopened, what we're planning on doing about our online classes. So just this morning, I was teaching online. I teach every Tuesday. I teach at home from my basement studio. And I keep thinking, I'm like, how long am I going to do this? But just this morning, we had somebody from New Orleans. We had somebody from California. We had somebody from Canada. When I see how many people are tuning in from all around the world, it makes me think, why would I stop this? Yes, many of us are seeing each other in person at our Upper West Side studio, but many people can't 
do that. And what I've really enjoyed is growing this community. So I see no reason to change that. So we're going to continue our online classes, our hybrid classes, and our in-person classes for as long as you want us, we'll be there. So you can always check out our classes at prenatalyogacenter.com and of course, our workshops and our on-demand classes. Now, for the times that you can't quite make it to class or maybe yoga is just not your thing, but you still have some aches and pains, head to our website and download your free downloadable, your free guide, five simple solutions to the most common pregnancy pains. And you can substitute the word postpartum for pregnancy because whether you had, whether you just had a baby or you're pregnant, you might still have back pain. You might still have neck pain. You might still have hip pain. So I got you covered there. And then the last thing I want to share, what we've decided to do with our teacher training. So we're keeping it online and in person. So twice a year, we will be in person. Twice a year, we'll be online. And then I've been approached from some studios to bring our very intense, very wonderful and thorough training to some other studios. So you might see me popping around the US. And then once a year, we do a postnatal teacher training. You can all check that out online at our website. All right. I lied. This is my very last thing I want to share. And it's more about serving you. If there is a podcast topic I haven't done, or maybe I've done, but you want me to go in a different direction or deeper, I want to hear from you. I want to hear what topics you want to hear about. I'm here to serve you and support you. So if there's something I haven't done or you want a different angle, let me know. You can reach me at deb at prenatalyogacenter.com. Okay, we're going to take a super quick break. When we come back, please enjoy my absolutely lovely, wonderful conversation with Marley Hall, midwife Marley. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, Marley. How are you? I'm really, really well, thank you. And I'm delighted to um, be here chatting with you today. Thank you. I am so excited to pick your brain on many things. I want to talk about your new book and I want to talk about induction. So I'm really thrilled to jump in. So I guess we should start with, I'd love to learn a little bit about you and what led you to midwifery? Well, gosh. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, I'm a midwife I'm in the UK and I've been a midwife for 13 years. And I guess my journey to midwifery began when I was 18 and I was having my first baby. Um, and I didn't know anything about pregnancy. You know, obviously I was very young and didn't know anything about birth. And um, I went into labour and it was the, the midwife and her assistant or her student that were looking after me. And I and they were so wonderful and amazing. I thought to myself, you know what? I would love to do that. I would love to make women feel like they made me feel, you know, one day. Mm. And it was just kind of like a fleeting um, thought. But then, because uh, then I went to university and studied um, broad, broadcast media because I, I was going to be a journalist. Um, but then when I finished that degree, I was like, you know what? I still want to be a midwife. So I decided to um, go back and train as a midwife because obviously over here in the UK, um, we don't have labour nurses. We have 
midwives in hospitals. So that's what I did. And then I, I, I kind of, I started my journey and I had twin boys when I was in my third year of my, of my midwifery course. And, um, by the time I qualified, I had three children. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, fast forward a few years and, and here we are. So I've, I've worked in lots of different areas. I've, I've worked in hospitals. I've worked in birth centers. Um, I've worked in people's homes. I've done home birth, um, worked in the community and clinics. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've had quite a, quite a vast range of experience in different settings, which has been really good, actually, really good for, for for me and my learning you know um and uh now i don't work in the nhs anymore the national health service i work independently so i work as a private midwife um and i I primarily do like antenatal or prenatal care and postnatal care as well so once the baby's been born um not doing births at the moment but that's mainly because i've got so many children to (laughs) to kind of deal with myself that uh, being on call would be a bit tricky for me, perhaps until they're a little bit older. So, How many kids do you have? Uh, I've got five. I've got five children now, and they range in ages from, well, my youngest is three, and then I have a five-year-old, and my twins are 14, and my eldest is 22. Wow, so, that is the range. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And your Quite hands are full. <laughs> I can, I can, I, that's amazing. I can hear them in the background. Um, and that, I mean, that's what life as a parent is. I mean, the only reason I can do this so easily right now is because my kids are in school, but when they weren't, I, I totally understand that. So that's amazing. I love to hear about how long you've been doing this and about your background. And I, I totally agree that having the opportunity to practice midwifery in so many different places really can inform so much of your learning and how you, you know, you're not pigeonholed into one way of seeing things. It really can broaden your experience. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, when I, when I first qualified as a midwife, um, we had to do like this rotation around the, the, the maternity unit in the hospital. So you have to do, you know, like a year on the labor ward or the delivery suite. Then you have to move on and, and work in the postnatal area and then you have to go into the community. So it was nice actually that once I had left, so I'd done my, my year on the labor ward, you know, a lot of high, it was a high risk unit. So lots of people coming in with um, complications and there was, you know, epidurals and inductions and cesarean sections and all that kind of thing. So there was lots of that. And then by the time I actually got out into the community and started running clinics and doing home births, it was like, oh my gosh, there's this totally different side of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and it was a real eye opener to be able to see all the different aspects of pregnancy and birth care you know, not just what you kind of see on TV, which is, you know, women going into hospitals and, um, uh, and having kind of high risk care. So, so yeah, it was a real eye opener and, and midwifery is a, a lifelong learning experience. You know, there's no two days are the same, no two women are the same. And, um, yeah, we just, we just learn so much, which is why I love it. Yeah, I remember when I was a doula, having done many hospital births and then having the first mm. home birth, and I'm like, wow, I didn't know birth yeah. could be this way. All right, I'm going to pull us back on topic because I'm so excited to talk about induction. So mm. let's jump into this. So I was doing a little research for our conversation, and I'm so curious to hear about some of the UK numbers because one thing I found when I was looking at some data, and the only data I could find reflecting the induction rates in the US was from 
2018. And mm-hmm. what it was saying that in 2018, 25.7% of people, of pregnant folks, mm-hmm. uh, including 31% of first time births were induced. So it's about a third of parents being induced, which seems kind of bonkers. A third of parents being induced. Yeah. Do you happen to know what the rates are in the UK? It's about the same, actually. And wow. I know, um, like old figures would say that, you know, one in five births or 20% are induced. But now we know uh, recent, more recent figures. Uh, I mean, obviously it depends from area to area and hospital to hospital, but, um, anywhere between 25 and, you know, 32, 33%. So it's, it's probably around the same, actually, as, um, as over in wow. the US. It is, it is crazy. I mean, you know, interventions, inductions, um, assisted births, they're all there for a reason. Um, and they are needed in a lot of cases, but I definitely think they're being overused, you know? Yeah. So that's why when I was creating this, this idea for today's conversation, it was my brain is like the yes, no, and the maybe. So like, because yeah. as you said, there are absolutely times where interventions are a life-saving tool. And mm-hmm. then other times we're like, really? And then other times we're like, maybe. So I guess we should jump into, where should we start? Um, maybe <laughs> let's start with a little bit of information about induction and what would you consider medically indicated? And let's also define what that would be a medically indicated induction. Okay. So there, when, when you think about induction, um, uh, for, for medical reasons, you have to think about the risks. So, what are, you know, do, do the risks of the baby remaining inside, sorry, do the risks of the baby being born outweigh the risk of the baby baby remaining inside um, for either the mum or the baby or both? So that's what we have to consider. So, um, you know, if there is, if there is the option to keep baby uh, inside for a little bit longer to grow, because obviously we need, we know babies need, really they need, they need at least 39 weeks to grow properly um even though they might be the right size you know you have to think about brain and lung development so you know do does the baby need to be born and what will happen if the baby isn't born right now is that going to have an impact on on mum or baby so there are several cases really i mean you think about things like severe preeclampsia so with severe preeclampsia um the only known cure really is to get the placenta out and the only way you're going to get the placenta out is to get the baby out mm-hmm. so if somebody has severe preeclampsia um and you know it, it's likely to get worse and cause problems then an induction might be offered now i've i've worked with lots of people who have had preeclampsia and it's been mild and it's been managed and monitored just to get them through the last couple of weeks of pregnancy so their baby's you know a bit more mature and ready ready to be born so it's a a case of kind of weighing it up and you know do we need to get the baby out now and that kind of all depends on 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 blood levels and things like and blood pressure and that kind of thing another reason would be something like um uh intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy um, or, or obstetric cholestasis, so that's um, a liver problem, and that's where um, there's a problem with the with the um, bile acids. Now we know that people who develop that they tend to develop it some point in the third trimester, and often it um, if it's quite severe, sometimes babies need to be, need to come out early, you know, 35 weeks, 36 weeks, 37 weeks, sometimes because 
it's better for the baby to be out rather than in. Um, you know, because the rates of, of stillbirth are, are increased. If somebody has perhaps uncontrolled or very unstable diabetes, then again, that might be another reason to consider induction. And again, even with diabetes, there's such a huge range. You know, some people have have it mildly and they can control it with their food. You know, um, you know, you, you might have somebody who's a, who's a type type two diabetic and it's well controlled, or you might have somebody who's got gestational diabetes and again they, they're controlling it okay, and they are, um, you know, they're okay to kind of go closer to full to full term or as close to full term as possible. Other people, there might be some. Um, uh, some problems or some, some indications for for induction. Um, another reason, actually, probably one of probably one that I actually experienced myself. I didn't end up having an induction for this, so I had a cesarean section. It was this was for my twins. So you've heard of IUGR, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yeah, so oh, it, growth it, restriction. Yeah. So um, one of my twins, they were they were, they were fraternal twins. So not, not 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 identical, and one of them had stopped growing. And uh, well, he was kind of measuring very very small. Now, just measuring small alone isn't a reason to induce a baby because some babies are small. You know, we have to look at people. We have to look at things holistically. You know, it's like when you you have um, parents from certain parts of the world. You know, um, you go to to the Far East, and perhaps people are a lot smaller. People are a lot shorter. Babies are a lot smaller, so we can't kind of put everybody in the same bracket. We have to look at each person individually. So just simply having a baby that's a little bit on the small side isn't necessarily a reason to induce. We have to think, well, why is the baby small? Is there a problem with the placenta? And that's why we then, you know, do the um, the Dopplers to check the blood blood flow through the placenta, etc. So with my um, one of my twins, he had stopped growing, so we did further scans and we found out that actually the um the blood flow through the placenta wasn't very good um and his growth basically more or less stopped over several days so um i was 34 weeks at that point and i'd already been through a, a vaginal birth before so i knew what to expect and i knew being a student midwife at the time that my chances of having a successful induction at 34 weeks were probably very very slim because my body was nowhere near ready and then on top of that, I've got a compromised baby. So do I want to put him through synthetic contractions? You know, probably not. So the choice was made to have, the decision was made to have a cesarean. So that's another another reason perhaps that somebody might um, consider, you know, an induction or getting the baby out early if, if perhaps there's growth restriction. So those really are the, probably the key, re, the key medical indications Um for induction of labour, but obviously there are lots, lots more. <laughs> you know, um, going overdue isn't a medical indication for um, for uh, for an induction of labour. But I, I guess we'll we'll move on to that shortly. Yes, we will. <laughs> so, yeah, so this was when I was thinking about the yes, no, the maybe. This mm. feels like we're definitely hitting the yes pile. Like if someone is, if your care provider is saying, okay, you have cholestasis, this isn't. We're like, well, how much more time? Because I always think about. I invite my students to think of three questions. Questions. Am I okay? Mm-hmm. Meaning the pregnant person is the baby okay? Can we have more time? In all yes. these cases, no. Like you don't get more time because <laughs> we did not check those boxes. So this really mm-hmm. can highlight that. So let's talk about then, and I'm going to kind of bop around my questions. So these were clearly medically indicated. Mm. 
So let's talk about, and you kind of opened that door for, this is kind of a big meaty question. Those that are not medically indicated, like passing one's due date, for example, <laughs> let's yeah. walk through that door. Gosh, well, this is such a, this is such a big topic and there's so much contradictory advice. There's so much, um, so many contradictory studies and it's, it's a real minefield. It's, it's, it's a minefield for, for, for parents, but it's also a minefield for health professionals as well because, you know, I've read a lot of research around due dates and things and lots of, lot, a lot of stats. And, you know, when we're talking about things like stillbirth rates, which is, which is the main, which is the main thing that people worry about, you know, um, if I go overdue, is my placenta going to fail? And, you know, I don't want my baby to die. And it's something that we don't want to think about really, but mm-hmm. you know, it, it's something that's kind of thrown on us if we go past our due date. And historically, you know, parents were told, well, if you go past 42 weeks, you know, your, your placenta is going to fail and, you know, your, your risk of stillbirth shoots up. Well, when I had a little look at the Office for National Statistics and I looked at the stillbirth rates by gestation, I was really surprised. This is in, in the UK. I was really surprised. I actually wrote about this in my book. And um, I found that and this was this was data from i think 2017 to 2018 off the top of my head and i found that it showed that at 39 and 40 weeks gestation the stillbirth rate was 0.93 per thousand babies right at 41 weeks Actually, no, sorry, I've got the wrong way around. <laughs> At 39 and 40 weeks, the stillbirth rate was 1.03 per thousand. Okay. At 41 weeks, the stillbirth rate was 0.93. So it went thousand. down. Yes. So I'm looking, thinking, what? That doesn't make any sense. That goes against everything I've been told. But these are just these are just black and white stats. So at this gestation, this you know, the, 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 these number of babies um, were were stillborn. So I'm thinking it doesn't make any sense to me at all because I've been told that you know the risk goes up. But I think what the problem is is we're not looking at other problems that people may well have had during their pregnancy. So we're not. So when we're talking about um, you know placentas failing. We're not looking at necessarily looking at healthy, low risk people. We're perhaps looking at people with other comorbidities, you know, other mm. problems, perhaps blood pressure issues or, or other issues that um, uh, uh, may not necessarily have been documented. So what I worry about is people kind of jumping on the, you know, got to be induced at this gestation um, train without looking at the person holistically and you know because when I used to look after people in the community who used to come to my clinics they would come and see me at 40 weeks and then see me at 41 weeks and then the policy from the hospital says that we're supposed to book them in for an induction of labour but not everybody wants an induction of labour so I would often give people people who'd come to me at uh, 42 weeks, they're still fine. There's no blood pressure issues. There's no protein in their urine. They're not feeling unwell. The babies, there's plenty of movements. Um, the pregnancy, they've sailed through it. There's been no issues at all. So I asked them, well, what do you want to do? 
you know, um, they're like, Oh, I've got a choice. I'm like, of course you've got a choice. You know, it's, it's totally down to you. Um, they're like, okay, well, let's just wait a few more days, you know, and then they often just go into labor by themselves anyway. But what we do do is we offer them additional monitors. We say, okay, well, if you want to, if you want to come into the hospital once a day, and have a CTG, which I think you guys over there call it an NC, um, non-stress test. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, just to make sure everything's okay with the baby's heart rate and, 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 and what have you. And the amount of people that were like, okay, well, I'll do that then, you know, and see how it goes. Um, was quite, was quite astonishing really. Um, but I think what does happen is you do get to a certain gestation where, you are more likely to to have complications. You know, the stillbirth rate goes up very slightly. And when I say slightly, I mean very slightly, like, you know, a point of a percent um, from from 43 weeks onwards. We know that much. But most people don't go to 43 weeks. Most people will give birth before that. But now, especially over here in the UK, new, um, uh, new guidelines have been suggested to induce even before the due date. So if you are um, for a black or ethnic minority, for example, if you have got a higher BMI, if you are, um, if you've had IVF and there's several other, um, several other reasons as well, then to be offered an induction of labor at 39 weeks, which actually we all kind of protested about because that seems absolutely ludicrous, especially if the pregnancy is, is okay. If there's nothing wrong with the pregnancy, why on earth are we offering people um, an induction of labour at 39 weeks? Because they're, because someone's black? Well, well, we know what the stats say around that. We know that the stats say that um, black women are f- over here are four times more likely to, to die. But is the answer just to whip the baby out at 39 weeks? Because then we, we, we're not considering the other issues that an induction of labour might cause. You know, and I say this as a person who's been induced, you know, I've had, I've actually had three inductions, you know, um, so, but I, I, I made those decisions, um, in a fully informed manner, you know, and that's what it's all about. It's all about informed choice. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to be offering these procedures, then we need to give everybody all the information they need. We need to be talking about the benefits and the risks and we don't talk about the risks enough, you know. I would do. I want to talk about the risk. I know I'm veering slightly off topic, but we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, let's have a clearer picture. And I know there's still other um, non-medical, not medical reasons that someone may be asked to be indu- induced, like big baby. So we'll get to that. But before we get to that, let's just open it up and say, look at the pros and cons that people, as you said, can make informed decisions. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So let's, let's go into that. So if people are going to make informed decisions, they need both sides of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I like to use, which you probably heard of as well, the brain acronym. Yep. Um, for asking questions and that goes with anything that goes with any kind of investigation, treatment, uh, intervention, anything, anything that's been offered to you. Well, let's just give that in case people are like, what is that? It's benefit yeah. risk. <laughs> um, what was a alternative, alternative intuition yeah. and then nothing. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So the first one, you know, and this is all about asking questions. So if you ask, um, if you're offered an induction of labor, um, you want to ask, well, what are the benefits? How is this going to benefit me and my baby? You know, is this a life-threatening situation where if I don't, if the baby doesn't come out, you know, in the next few days or whatever, there's a there's a high chance that something is going to happen. And if there's a high chance, what is that chance? You know, I want figures. I want numbers. You know, um, it's it's no good saying to clients to patients that. Oh, you know, you've got you've got an increased risk. But what is that risk? You know, are we talking about the the risk goes from one in a thousand to to one point two in a thousand? You know, is that a real real increase, a significant increased risk? So this is this is a problem when we think about numbers. You know, so to ask what are the benefits, and then ask what are the risks. So you know, you've told me what the benefits are. Okay, so. the, the benefits are the baby can come out into the outside world and um, uh, has got a better chance outside than, than, than in. So what are the risks? Well, we need to know what the risks of induction of labour are. When I mean, there's different types of induction, and we, you might want to discuss those mm-hmm. um, later on. Um, but if we are talking about a medical induction which goes through everything, so we're talking about um, amniotomy, which is breaking the waters, we're talking about um, a prostaglandin uh, gels or tablets, to, to, to soften and dilate the cervix, and then even moving on to the the, ox, the synthetic oxytocin drip. What are the risks of all those things? You know, because it's not just a case of just giving you some drugs and any labour starts. And then, are there any alternatives? Is there anything else we can do? You know, is there anything else we can do if 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 I've got a, you know, some kind of um, medical condition? Is there um, any medication I can take? Is there any um, thing holistically I can do? Alternative therapies I can I can try to help the situation. There might not be, but it's always worthwhile asking asking the question. And then we move on to I, which is intuition. What is your gut telling you deep down? Listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. We don't listen to ourselves enough, you know. Or we're a bit unsure. Oh, I'm not sure, you know, but. I always say intuition, your intuition is, is nine times out of ten right. And it's the same when you have your baby. I, I hear so many mothers who, who come to me and I say, you know, I, I went to the doctors five times because there's something wrong with my baby. They just turned me away. And then, you know, something ends up happening. Listen to, to your intuition. And, and actually, we need to listen to, to parents as well. We need to be listening to them because they know their bodies and they know their babies mm-hmm. better than we do. And then N would be nothing. So, okay, so if we do nothing and, you know, I decide not to take the treatment or the intervention or, or, or investigation or whatever, what's going to happen? You know, what's what's likely to happen? So by using that brain acronym, 
that will help you get those answers so that you can make that decision yourself. And it, the decision is for you to make. It's not for anybody else to make. It's for you. And that would be once you've gone through the BRAIN acronym and you've made your decision, then you've made an informed one. You know, obviously, as long as you've got the answers <laughs> that you're, you know, to the questions that you're looking for, then you've got the answers to um to to to, to those things. But that, but it's it, but it's definitely important to start to start there um, before you can make an informed choice. And this is so helpful because people may start to hear from their care provider, "Oh, you're 40 weeks. I think we should start talking induction." As you mentioned, I feel like I hear students say that at 39 weeks, and mm. then I've also heard students say, "Oh, my doctor thinks my baby's going to be big," which I'd love to talk about that. Mm. You know what? I, my care provider is talking about inducing me. They're afraid baby's too big. So what you just gave is a great way to have a non-confrontational conversation with the care mm-hmm. provider. I hear you. Thank you. Let's go through this, this list and, and that way I can make an informed decision. And it, I find that students, I call them students because they're my yoga students are, mm-hmm. are sometimes intimidated to broach the topic, but I think by, coming at it with this really mindful list, the brain acronym, it can make the conversation feel less intimidating. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Of course. And I think, you know, people do feel scared to ask questions, you know, because I think they, they often feel like, you know, well, why am I questioning the the doctor or why am I questioning the, the health professional? You know, they know best, you know, and, and actually, you know yourself best. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you really do know yourself best and you may well go ahead and agree to a, an intervention, which is fine, or you may disagree. And, you know, but as long as you've had that conversation, that is the main thing. Mm, I could not agree more. So I've been <laughs> itching to talk about the big baby. Um, so <laughs> I hear this, I hear this a lot. In fact, mm. I heard this with my own, they weren't talking induction, but I remember the midwife, she got her hands on my belly and she's like, I think it's about eight pounds. And I'm like, well, cause my first child was eight pounds with my second. I'm like, okay, I did it once. I can do it again. She was seven. <laughs> she was seven pounds. So, and it was a much easier birth for many reasons, but whatever. So yeah. when it's a, that gets into people's heads when mm-hmm. they hear you're going to have a big baby. People are like, oh, geez. And then there's the invitation for induction. I'd love just to open this for you to talk about. Oh, gosh. You know, this is something that is brought up every single day. You know, I, I see it on social media all the time. And, you know, and then I'll hear things like, oh, I was told that I'm having a big baby. One lady was really angry because she she got taken to, for a cesarean because she was told her baby's going to be 12 pounds and it came out and I think the baby was like six and a half or something. Oh um, I mean, anybody that palpates your abdomen, anyone that feels your abdomen and says, oh, I think it's a guess. There's no way that we can tell, you know, um, accurately how big a baby is going to be just by feeling the size of its head or by feeling your, your belly. That's the, We can't do that. Even ultrasound scans. Um Ultrasound scans are good, but they're not incredibly accurate at, at, at predicting weight, you know. And I, I actually put a poll up on my Instagram a couple of months ago, I think, asking people, um, you know, would you give in a growth scan? And 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 the next question was, you know, if if so, was your um, was the growth accurate? And I think something like eighty five percent of people said no. <laughs> You know, it wasn't, um, and it's significantly, you know, not not accurate at all. So, over here, 
the the guidelines over here for um, for offering induction for suspected big baby state that doctors and midwives should not under any circumstances be offering or discussing an induction of labor on the basis of a suspected big baby in the absence of any other problems so now if somebody has diabetes and the baby is suspected to be significantly large that's different because you've got two issues there you've got one that we think the baby might be big and secondly you've got the diabetes, you know. So if someone's baby is suspected to be big and there's other comp- other issues as well, you're thinking, oh, gosh, there's this and there's this and there's this, then perhaps, you know, have the conversation. But again, you don't have to agree. And then you need to be asking, well, what does it mean? You know, what, what are the risks of having a big baby? You know, we're talking about shoulder dystocia. If that's the case, well, what are the... what are the risks? Actually, majority of babies that have a shoulder dystocia are actually normal weight. You know, mm-hmm. we know that it happens slightly more in higher babies, sorry, in heavier babies, bigger babies. So the rate, so the rate of shoulder dystocia is slightly higher in bigger babies than it is normal sized babies. But in general, the majority of babies whose shoulders get stuck are actually normal or below average weight. Okay. So it's all about asking what the stats are. What are the numbers? So asking what the risks are. Um, but yeah, in general, just by sort of, you know, saying, oh, what well, I think it could be, you know, the scan says, we've got to, remember, got to remember as well that ultrasound scans are machinery, you know, it's equipment. And, and it also depends a lot on where the sonographer places the little X's when they're doing the measurements. I had a client of mine a couple of weeks ago who was telling me about a previous birth, her previous birth. And she said that she had two ultrasound scans done one was done privately because she didn't believe the 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 nhs one so the nhs one i think she was about 38 weeks and it estimated the baby was going to was going to weigh about 11 pounds she went for a private scan i think a few days later and it said about seven pounds so she was like what on earth you know two different ultrasonographers two different facilities and they gave her two completely different ultrasound scan reports so it's just something we just need to be mindful of and i'm not saying that you know shoulder dystocia and other complications don't occur because they do but we just need to take everything into consideration and also when we're thinking about giving birth i mean obviously i know you um you know you're you're an expert in yoga things like exercise getting into certain positions Mm -hmm. um are going to be beneficial in reducing the, the the chance of your baby's shoulder getting stuck. You know, I've been there. I've helped 12, 13-pound babies come out vaginally with no problem whatsoever. But these women weren't lying flat on their backs, on their, be- on, on, on their backs, on the beds with their legs up. They were doing whatever they wanted to do. They were moving around freely, and they were, and they were instinctively or intu- intuitively get, getting into the position that they – felt that they needed to, to birth their big babies, you know? I do. In fact, that's something when I've had students say, oh, my care provider thinks it's going to be big. Mm. I try to look at the pause and say, that's then a fantastic conversation saying, thank you for this information. Now we need to talk about alternative 
birthing positions. So mm. make more space in the pelvis. Let that sacrum swing out of the way. How yes. can we use our legs to internally rotate to widen the outlet? So I try to then reflect it back to the student to talk to their care provider about instead of going at it with fear, going at it with a sense of working with this information and empowerment. Okay, baby's big. Maybe I'm on my side. Maybe I'm squatting. Maybe I have a peanut ball to help that baby descend more. So I think it's how, I think it's finding um, confidence instead of fear because who wants to be told, oh my gosh, I don't know if that baby's going to come out of your pelvis. That's not going to help somebody relax into birth. Exactly, exactly. But you know what as well? I think a lot of the fear comes from some, not all, but some health um, healthcare providers as well because when you think about you know like a lot of the the doctors that i've worked with in high-risk units they've only ever seen um and been involved with high-risk births because over here in the, in the uk anyway um obstetricians obstetric doctors are only um called when there's a problem mm-hmm. you know most babies that are, that are you know are born um straightforward no complications are delivered by midwives. I say delivered. I don't. I don't like that word really, but I'm going to say it for the purpose of this <laughs> podcast. Um, but by, by midwives. So when you've got a doctor who only ever really attends births if they're doing an assisted birth, so forceps or suction or cesareans, or coming in to help free a, a shoulder that's been stuck, of course they're going to be on high alert and high guard all the time because that's all they're used to. They're not used to. Um, going um, to a home birth and spending 12 hours with somebody in labor. They're not used to that because they don't participate in that area of it. They just come in at the last minute when help is needed. Right. So it's considering that as well, you know, having somebody on your team that is confident because if they're not confident themselves or if they're fearful, then that is going to kind of project in what, what's being offered to you. Yeah. I actually worked with a care provider several, one provider several times when I was a doula and I saw a big change in attitude. And what one of the nurses told me was that that doctor had dealt with a really complicated shoulder dystocia between the times I'd worked with them. So the first several times, everything seemed confident and smooth. And then a couple months later, when I worked with that care provider again, there was definitely a different energy and attitude and then kind of getting this, the curtain drawn back like, Oh, because they had a fear, they had a trauma of dealing with shoulder dystocia and that then colored how they approached the people after them. Absolutely. I I totally agree. I think that's why like as, as midwives over here, that's why I think it's been so useful to, to, for me anyway, to work in lots of different settings and to see lots of different types of birth. Mm -hmm. It kind of opens my it's opened my eyes up a bit more. And over the years, I've become more and more experienced. Um, I've kind of, you know, I've gone from being this high-risk labor ward midwife, you know, who is dealing with inductions and, and, and assisted births and cesareans and, and, and drips, you know, IVs and, and women being strapped to the bed on monitors to moving out and, and seeing working in birth centers and understanding physiological birth and actually how that works and how we can um can often cause a cascade of intervention mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you know we, we 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 really do sometimes and sometimes in, like i said before at the start of the podcast sometimes inter- intervention is 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 needed it mm-hmm. really is um but 
you know, a lot, lot, lot of the time it's not. And it's just confidence from both the, 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 the person who's giving birth and the person who's facilitating that birth. Yeah, know, I agree. Person. So we covered some very definitive, yes, this is medically indicated. We covered a couple that not necessarily medically indicated. What might be some gray areas that someone may be considering induction and they, they don't fall really in either camp? Um, you come across some people who request an induction for, for, for social reasons. So perhaps, um, perhaps they, I don't know, um, they might have a close relative, um, who sadly is, has got terminal illness or something like that. Mm. Um, and it's like they scheduling. Yeah. So they want that baby to be born so that they can, you know, um, yeah, understandably, um, take the baby to visit that, that close person to them. So things like that. So induction for social reasons. Um, other times people have experienced a loss themselves, um, for, for an unknown reason. Perhaps they've experienced, uh, a stillbirth or even, um, a neonatal death. Um, and this time round, they, you know, they want to, they don't want to wait. They want to, you know, they want to meet their baby. Mm-hmm. So again, they may well, re- you know, request that. Um, I mean, over here, we don't tend to have physicians that, you know, want to schedule in an induction because, um, it suits them because of the, the, the healthcare system is, work, works differently over here. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not privatized. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, uh, when you give birth over here, you often don't know who is going to be there to kind of catch your baby. It could be whoever's working on shift at the time rather than your, you know, your designated OBGYN or midwife or whatever. Um, other gray areas, I guess, again, mm, we, we already spoke about post dates. Um, perhaps if somebody has, um, has previously had a cesarean. So these would be the ones that are hoping for a VBAC. Now, so that's a, which is a vaginal birth after a cesarean. Um, policies vary from place to place uh, on, on induction of labour. Some policies um, may say that, you know, um, an induction should be should be offered at, you know, before the due date others um will say that you know if somebody hasn't given birth by such and such date then we're not going to induce at all um you know that the, the person's going to be offered a cesarean section instead um some will say well we will offer an induction but we're not going to use the prostaglandin gel because that, that can increase the risk of of um of of, of uterine rupture so those so those kind of requests they're a bit a little bit of a gray area as well um, but I think mainly the main the main kind of grey area for for induction are the social are the social the reasons. Request, yeah, the, the request, yeah, the request from the parents. Yeah. That, from either side, yeah. That is really really helpful. So we've talked about again, the 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 yes, the no, the maybe. So now some people might be thinking, all right. So if I if I fall into the yes or even the maybe. What is the process? Do you mind just sharing? We talked a little bit about like the prostaglandins in the pit and the amniotomy, but would you mind just painting a picture of a typical process of induction and then how to make it 
smooth and hopefully a successful <laughs> induction. Yeah. So do you know what the, the process of induction, it, it varies depending on the person mm-hmm. and, and how favorable yeah, and where their, their services, their, their services. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and how many babies they've had before. So, um, what would usually happen is you would go into hospital because inductions cannot occur in a birth center and they cannot occur at home. So it would have to be a hospital birth. So you'd go in and the first thing that's usually done is the baby's monitored. So you've been strapped on the monitor for, for about half an hour or so, maybe a little bit more. And um, just to make sure baby's okay, because the last thing that we want to do is to start the induction process and start giving you drugs if your baby's heart rate is not, if your baby's not happy, um, because that can make things worse. So once we've got a nice trace and the baby's heart rate's okay and we know there's plenty of movement and all is okay, then the next thing would be to do um, a vaginal examination to examine the cervix. If the cervix is completely closed and it's long and it's, it still feels hard, there's been no changes at all, which is what you would expect if somebody's a full term, and I know there's this big obsession about checking cervixes and, you know, um, you know, my, my cervix hasn't dilated and I'm 38 weeks pregnant, but I wouldn't expect it to at that stage. Um, if the cervix is completely closed, then you would be given um, a either a pessary, so which is like a little tablet put behind the, the back of the cervix, um, or a gel, which contains a prostaglandin hormone. And that hormone is usually secreted by the cervix when you go into labour naturally to help soften the cervix and it helps it start to kind of thin out um, a face. So sometimes that is enough to actually kickstart labour, you know, and and, and lots of people, the the labour starts just, just by giving the prostaglandin gel or tablet. If you're given that and um, nothing happens, then you'll be offered another dose at a later stage. So it could be, depending on the hospital's policy, it could be six hours later, it could be the next day, it just depends. And then most people will respond to the prostaglandin and the cervix starts to dilate a little bit. But if it's still not enough to kickstart labour and they can get a finger inside the cervix, they may try to break the waters next. So that's just the, the, the membrane sac around the baby. And they do that using an amni hook, which is like a plastic um, stick with a hook on the end, which is passed through the vagina into the cervix. And it just literally just kind of cuts open the the, the, the membrane sac. It doesn't hurt. Um, it's, it can feel a bit uncomfortable, but it shouldn't actually hurt. Um, and again, sometimes that is enough just to get labour going. So you've had the, prostin, uh, the prostaglandin gel. You've had your waters broken. Sometimes that can be enough just to kickstart the whole process. If a couple of hours have passed by and still no contractions, nothing, then the third stage would be to put the synthetic oxytocin drip. And this drip starts the contractions. Um, So those are the three three main steps but it all depends on the person so say say you go in and your cervix isn't closed say it's already open then you don't need the prostaglandin all you'd need is for them to, to break your waters and then potentially start the oxytocin drip um if you don't start having contractions do you guys use a foley bulb there um sometimes but in some some situations so say say for example somebody's had a um 
someone's having a wants to have a VBAC, um, but they are having an induction and we can't use a prostaglandin, mm-hmm. then a Foley bulb might be used, but they, they're pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> so um, we try not to use them where possible. Mm-hmm. So it's usually just the gel and the uh, breaking the waters and then the drip. But the Foley bulbs are used, yeah, in some, in some, some circumstances. Yeah, this is why I always love when I speak with people from different places, because even in the U.S., different cultures of like what we do in New York might be different what someone does, you know, in California. So it's Mm -hmm. different cultures. So I find it really interesting. This has been so helpful. I think that those listeners that are hearing this will get a better idea of when something is medically indicated when it's gray, when it's not. So I want to switch, unless there's anything else about induction that I didn't ask that that you're dying to share. Well, I, th- I think, um, yeah, well, there's a couple of things to, to bear sure, in sure, mind. Sure. Yeah. So, so when you have an induction, um, it's highly likely that you would need to have continuous monitoring. Mm-hmm. So you will more than likely be strapped to, to the bed and you'll obviously have cannulas, you'll have IVs in your hand or your arm, um, for, um, for the fluids to go in. And, it's important to understand that the if you have the oxytocin, the, the synthetic oxytocin drip, that they do produce um, stronger contractions. Mm-hmm. It's not like having a normal. It's not like like going into labour normally. So, and um, because of that, majority of people who are induced will opt to have um, an epidural um, to cope with the to cope with those contractions because they're very, very different to normal labor contractions. So it's, um, it's worthwhile bearing that in mind. Yeah. The whole hormonal blueprint is different. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, I have a wonderful podcast. So listeners take a look at the show notes because I have a wonderful podcast with Dr. Sarah Buckley about this. So those that are listening, head to the show notes. You can hear that's another whole conversation. Amazing. But one thing I'd love to also add, and I, I suspect Marley would agree with this is if you're having an epidural, use a peanut ball and recognize that that type of movement can help baby facilitate down and out because we don't want, I believe, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, that we don't want somebody to get quote unquote failed to progress because the, the induction, I hate the word failed again, failed. So learning how, if you're having an induction, if you know that's going to happen, making sure listeners that you examine ways that you can still be proactive and making space for baby to descend and rotate. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Movement is so important, but it's, it's obviously more difficult when you've got an epidural. Yeah, it is. Um, and it depends on the, um, the anesthetist that's, that's actually placing the epidural because they, um, you know, sometimes they do like a real hard block and so you can't even lift your legs up. And sometimes you can have something which we call over here a mobile epidural. I don't know if you call it the same thing over there or low dose epidural. It's gets called it's called a walking epidural, but walking no epidural. one's really no walking. One's really, <laughs> no, what it allows you to do it allows you to kind of shuffle around on the bed and perhaps go on your hands and knees if you want to, maybe or maybe sit up and swing your legs over the end, edge of the bed. But it's unlikely that you're going to be walking up and down the corridor, of course. Um, but it's worthwhile having that discussion because it means that you, you can move, even if you have a heavy epidural, you can still move with a, with a bit of help. And using a peanut ball, like you said, can can really help to 
um, increase that space um, in the pelvic outlet, you know, uh, to help baby descend descend down. And sometimes, you know, when somebody's had a, a, a slow labour, rather than saying, oh, you know, failed to, to progress, let's just whiz her down for a cesarean. Actually, how about as long as mum's okay and as long as baby's okay and there's no problems, let's change the position. Mm-hmm. Let's turn her on her side. Let's change the position. Allow baby's head a chance to rotate and come down further into that pelvis. Yes. Let's wait and watch and see what happens. Let's give them a bit more time. Yeah. Because often there's too much rushing, you know. But, yeah, peanut balls, I'm definitely a fan of them. <laughs> and doulas, but that's <laughs> yeah, I know I'm a little biased. Yeah. So I'm not. <laughs> All right. So I want to talk about your book. It's fantastic. I looked through. I got it. I looked through it. It took me a little bit. I couldn't get it on Amazon, so I had to get it through shoot, there's something else. I got it electronically. And it was mm. such a joy to look through. You did those drawings, right? Are those yours? Yeah, yeah <laughs> I did. So they're, they're all over my Instagram. So I, I started doing those drawings like three years ago. Um, and it was it was silly, really, because when I, when I put the first one up, I thought, oh, my gosh, people are going to think this is ridiculous. It's like a five-year-old has drawn them. But everyone loved it. And, um, great. and now I just use them to explain different aspects of pregnancy and birth. So, yeah, I've, I've illustrated it throughout. But what I appreciate about your book, and I would love for you to share a little bit, is it was just easy to read. I have read many, I'm talking many pregnancy, birth, childbirth education books. This, and some of them are a little hard to digest and, and get through. And some are too simplified. I'm like, who are you trying to talk to? This was, <laughs> this was is an easy read, digestible. You weren't talking down to anyone. It and it just kind of laid everything out there. Do you want to talk a little bit about your book? Yeah, well, I mean that that, that was the idea really because I remember being an eighteen year old first time mom and there wasn't really much back then anyway. <laughs> we didn't have the internet um, and um, you know there was a couple of like textbook type pregnancy books on the shelf that was so big and it would take you hours and hours to read and um half digest so I wanted to create something that like you said wasn't oversimplified and I know a lot of the chapters in my book are quite short but I try to get to the point as quickly mm-hmm. as I can and as succinct as I can taking into consideration everybody's um kind of reading ability and learning ability and 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 concentration as well because i know that there's a whole section on the fourth trimester which is you know after you've had the baby and if somebody's reading that they've just had a newborn they don't want to read be reading you know pages and pages and pages and pages of, of complex text yeah they want to if they want to find out why their baby's crying they want to have a book where they can just flip open the 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 the, the chapter have a quick read and go ah great I'm going to try that, you know. Um, so I, I just wanted to write a book that I, that I thought would appeal to everybody, which is why it's called obviously Midwife Marley's Guide for Everyone. Um, <laughs> you know, whether they're a first time mom, second time mom, regardless of what, you know, their family situation is, whether they're a single parent, whether they're in a same sex couple, um, you know, whether they're a surrogate, whatever, whatever your situation is, um, I wanted this book to be for you. So that's where the concept came from. And and obviously making it a little bit fun as well, which is why I've kind of added those doodles in because being a mum myself, you know, a lot of a lot of the the images that I that, that I that I drew, um, 
came from, you know, experiences that myself and I know other people have had. So I hope that people can re- resonate with them, you know? Um, so yeah, they just also make me smile. They're just, they're, <laughs> I don't know something about them. This makes me smile. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> okay, we're going to take another break. When we come back, do you have one final tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer new or expecting parents? We'll be right back. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So you have already offered us so much to think about, but from your many years as a midwife, as well as being a mother to five children, <laughs> what yeah. is one final tip you want to leave people with? My final tip would be to educate yourself. Mm. Um, learn as much as possible. And remember that your birth support, the people you have around you when you're having a baby, are going to have a big impact on how your birth pans out. You know, so that's your birth partner, your doula if you have one, um, and you know the health professionals facilitating your your birth. So it's so important that you've got people around you that are in your corner, <laughs> that yeah. are supporting you um, to have the birth that you want. And something else, actually, don't be afraid to ask questions and remember that this is your body, your baby, and and your birth. Yeah. I mean, that is educating yourself, asking the questions. Cause you yeah. know, as we talked about in the beginning of our conversation, making informed decisions, it's so very important. Absolutely. It really, really, really is. Where can people find all the work you do, including your book? So, um, I have a website, which is midwifemarley.com. Um, people can get in touch with me there or on socials. I'm at midwife Marley everywhere. So Instagram, YouTube, <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, uh, yeah, TikTok. All places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Midwife Marley. <laughs> I'm easy to find. And then where can they get your book? So, um, my book is available on, on Amazon. Um, it does vary by country. Yeah, it was taking me like two <laughs> weeks to get it. I was a little bit surprised. Oh, I know it's a bit of a pain, but obviously, obviously the ebook is downloadable straight yep, away. That's what I ended up um, doing. Yeah. But, um, depending on what country you're from, um, uh, maybe a bit more difficult. I know there are some smaller bookshops that are, that are selling it. So what I would do is I would just put midwife Marley book into Google. Um, and it should take you to, um, uh, one of the bookshops that you should be able to do to, 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 to order it from, depending on, on which country, which country's Google you're using. So for, I don't not, I don't think this will come out in time for Mother's Day, but those, maybe you can think of it for next year for people, but those that 
Um, they know friends that are going to be pregnant. This is a great Mother's Day gift. It's, Gosh, it's, absolutely. yeah, it really is. It's such a nice, it, again, I read a ton of these books and I just enjoyed the easiness of it. It didn't make me stressed out. I think new parents, there's so much information being thrown at them it and is. it's, it's overlap, isn't it? it is, and it's stressful. So that mm. is why I was excited to chat with you because I mean, many reasons, but that especially is like, I want to support this because I want people to feel confident and not overwhelmed. And I felt, I think you achieved that very well. Oh, thank you so much. You know, you know what? It's, it's, um, it's interesting. You reminded me about Mother's Day because it was Mother's Day here, um, literally, um, four days before my book was released. <laughs> so like the end of, um, the end of March, I was like, Oh my gosh, I could have had it out in time for Mother's Day, but uh, next year. <laughs> yeah, next time. <laughs> well, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.